Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Joshua 1, 1 through 5. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, together and toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we call out asking you to work in our own hearts. Jesus Christ, we're thankful for your gift of your life and your ministry and your ruling and reigning as king. Lord, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Lord, I pray that today together we would rejoice in your good name, in your good work, and the good future that we are a part of and that we look forward to in Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would impress on us the words of Jesus, these words of life that we would understand and that we would repent of our sin and that we'd believe the truth. God, we need you today. In our utter necessity of you, we call out and ask for you to help us. Lord, we thank you for this text, and I pray that Joshua would speak to us, and that we would listen. God, it is your word. Would you bless it and give us divine grace? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How would you like to be a guy like Tim Cook? who had to follow the man, the myth, the legend, Steve Jobs. Or, or a different scenario, how would you like to follow FDR, our American president? Like he was the guy that said, let me tell you what I've done in the first 100 days of my presidency. And that benchmark has been set by him and no one's done anything like he's been able to do in his first 100 days. Or let's go across the lake for a minute. Um, have any of you ever heard of a guy named Clement Attlee or Sir Anthony Eden? Probably not. Some of you may, but that's because those are the guys that followed Sir Winston Churchill as, you, as, uh, as ministers of the UK, prime ministers. When you put Moses and Joshua kind of in the same sentence, and we're talking about them as leaders in general, we as, as, as modern readers look back and we understand that. And we say, oh yeah, probably Moses is a little more important, but they're both leaders of Israel. When we come to verse 1 of chapter 1 here, to put Moses and Joshua in the same sentence and, and kind of on equal playing field is almost silly. Like talking about who would follow up on FDR, like who is the next guy? Who could possibly live up to these standards? Again, these are all human examples. But we see in this passage, what we're seeing is the close of an era. Moses has died. And we are seeing all the Pentateuch drawn to a close in this time. And so when we come to verse 1, 
we see Joshua start out this way. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, it didn't catch the people by surprise. It wasn't like he was assassinated or he had a heart attack or anything like this. They were prepared for his death. They knew it was coming. But that didn't make it any less monumental. This character was huge. Um, Consider for a moment Moses' legacy. It was Moses who leaves the glories of Egypt and becomes a shepherd. It was Moses who courageously then goes back to Pharaoh and demands that he let go his entire workforce, or at least all the Hebrews, and tells them, I want you to let them go out into the the desert with me to worship our God. It was he who had to deal then with the Hebrew response because the Pharaoh said, no, I'm going to increase your workload, and you're not going to eat straw about it either. You're going to have to deal with that. And the Hebrews are angry then with uh, Moses. So when we get to this, we see Moses is willing and able and courageous to lead them through this. It was Moses who led the people out of Egypt to Mount Sinai. And as they do this, he goes through the wilderness with them, leading them the whole way. It was Moses who went into God's presence and received God's word from him. It was Moses who wrote down the first five books of our Bible, the Pentateuch, the law of God. He's responsible for penning this. It was Moses who protected the people and shepherded them from their own destruction and sin. In Exodus 32 through 34, you'll remember this. It was Moses who called Israel to faithfulness. But in their inability to do so, Moses has to call on God to be faithful to his covenant. The people have turned their back on God and Yahweh will not put up with this rebellion. He tells Moses to let him and the people be alone. He says, basically, back up. I am going to destroy this people. I'll make the nation out of you, Moses. At this point, Moses is the only one who's in covenant faithfulness to Yahweh. He's the only one. Everybody else in Israel is literally on death's doorstep. But Moses stands as the mediator between God and men, a faithful, loving human being, and calls God to be gracious and merciful He calls him to deliver his people, to save them, even though they don't deserve it, for his name's sake. And God does. Let me read a little bit from Deuteronomy 34.10. This is at the end. This is after he passes away. This is a description of Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. In other words, there's nobody quite like Moses so far who stood before God in this way. In Joshua chapter 1, just the first chapter alone, Moses is named, if you look down, you can look at yourself, Moses is named 11 times just in chapter 1. And probably even a more staggering stat is that in the book of Joshua, Moses is called the servant of the Lord 14 times throughout the book. It is almost impossible to to underestimate how big he is. He's an enormous character in in this narrative. Who led the people out of Egypt? Moses. Who led them in covenant faithfulness? Moses. Who acted as a mediator and a representative before God? Moses. Who gave them the law? 
Moses, who led them into pre-conquest military excursions and told them to fight in the name of the Lord? Moses. And now, who will lead them into the promised land? Crickets. Not Moses. He's dead. D- do you get like the feeling here of all of Moses' legacy and now when at the climax it seems they're about ready to go into this land, he's gone. He's not there. He's dead. He leads them right to the edge and he leads them in, right? Nope. No, he doesn't. He dies. We need to feel the same way that the people of Israel would feel. Again, they knew that this was going to happen, but this incomparable leader, Moses, dies. I realize, again, and I'm taking a little bit of time on this, but we've got to understand this. This guy, this leader, Moses, is now dead. How in the world is someone going to fill those shoes and lead them into the most important section, seemingly, of their wanderings through the wilderness as now they go into the promised land? At the time they need him the most, or so they think, Moses is gone. He's dead. With this empty, anxious feeling, desiring direction and need for leadership, we hear God come and speak to Joshua. After acknowledging Moses' death, this is how he begins. Now, therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. Just as I promised Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. God commands Joshua to lead the people into Canaan. And what he is basically saying in this verse is, go over the Joshua, I mean, go over the Jordan, you and all the people, and go into the promised land. That's the imperative. That's the command here. So what's all this other stuff that's going on? What I want to do today is kind of walk through the text and help us understand these first five five verses and what it's setting up for us. Because truly, these first five verses help us to see all of what the rest of Joshua is about. It gives us in seed format what is going to happen throughout this time. So let's do this. Let me walk through it. We're going to start right at the beginning. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them to the people of Israel. This is the crossing of a physical barrier. This is not like the crick in the backyard that you and your friends throw, like, like little, make little paper boats that go down and you collect them again, or you throw sticks across, or you jump across and you push your brother into. We're talking about the Jordan River. It's so big and vicious at times, it is a physical barrier that, that barriers off a land. It shows us the region. And so what God is calling him to is to go into that region. He's saying, cross over this. The command is very clear. They are to go into this dangerous foreign land. Further, notice the, apparent, the imperative or this command is not go take the land. Go in there. Go fight and take the land. That's not the first thing he says. The first way that he describes this is far different. From the very outset, we have it described as the land that I am giving to them. This is God's show, not Israel's. This is God's show, not Moses's, not Joshua's, 
not the armies, not the peoples. This is all about God giving them this land. We get there and we understand from the beginning that this is something that was given to them. Verse 3, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Now, I'd like for you to put your finger here. And I wanted to read that because we're going to go back and we're going to look between two different passages. Place your finger here and I want you to go to Deuteronomy 11. Just a few pages back. We're going to look at Deuteronomy 11, 24, and 25. Now, if this was a core seminar, what I'd do is I'd hand out a sheet that had these two sections of Scripture next to each other to give you a detailed analysis. Because what's going to happen is here, God is going to quote from Deuteronomy 11. In fact, almost all of his speech in the first chapter of Joshua is restating parts of Deuteronomy. And he is part of numbers and different things throughout that. But what I want to show you is this close interaction with Deuteronomy 11, 24 and 25. It's not the exact quotation, but we'll see why it's so important. First, I want you to notice this. Let's not miss the fact that God is restating Moses' words. That should cause us to question what's going on. God quotes the words that Moses gave to the people of Israel. Thus, it strengthens the authority of the law and Moses. In fact, they're not actually Moses' words to begin with. They are God's. So the authority that everyone goes back and says Moses' books or the Pentateuch or the law, all of that is being generated. All the authority that comes is coming straight from the source, from God himself. And so when he restates these things, he is adding more authority onto it, saying clearly this is divine. This is inspired. Second, he's quoting the text that I just told you about, Deuteronomy 11, but it's not an exact quotation. He's not going to quote it word for word. In fact, he's going to make some major modifications and some additions as well. He does not simply repeat the promises made by Moses. He expands them. He's going to give us other information for helping us understand how they fit into this specific context. So let's do this. Look at Deuteronomy 11, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to say stop. As we read through, I'm going to go to Joshua and tell you what's a little bit different here so that you can see why the Joshua text is so important. So here we go. Deuteronomy eleven twenty four, Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Stop. Instead of saying shall be yours, in Joshua, God says, I have given you. We already talked about that a little bit. But then he also says, just as I promised Moses. We'll continue. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates to the western sea. Stop. Okay, now look at Joshua. Think about it, if I just, what I just read to you. God adds two more adjectives to these things. He doesn't just say river. He doesn't just say sea. He says the great river. He says the great sea. Further, he adds this little thing, all the land of the Hittites. I'm not going to explain it yet, but I just want you to see it. There's some differences here. We're going to explain it in a moment. Verse 25, no one shall be able to stand against you. Stop. Joshua adds this or the Lord adds this, all the days of your life. No one shall be able to stand against you all the days of your life. This is the whole quotation. It ends here. But then God is going to add something extra and actually quote from another place in Deuteronomy. And we see him say this, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. 
I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. We're going to learn a couple things from these differences. And I know this is a little bit uh, analytics, and I understand that. It's important, though, for us to understand why God did this. In the beginning of verse 24, when talking about the land, he goes further than just to say it'll be yours. He goes further to remind them that this is one that I have given you. This is about the supremacy of God, not the supremacy of Joshua or the armies or the people. It's not the land that you will go and take. It's the land that I am giving to you. That's right up front so important for them to see. God is the main actor here. He is the one who's providing. He's the one that's giving, as James says, every good and perfect gift. But he also clarifies for us what's going on with Joshua and company. The second thing this verse adds is, just as I promised Moses. He's helping them understand that these aren't just next steps in the wilderness. He is now coming to a point of fulfillment. He is declaring to him that it is time for me to fulfill these promises. They are coming to fruition in some way. The third thing you'll see that's worth mentioning here is this little adjective you see two different times about bodies of water. Great. We see great river. We see great uh, sea. Now, it's not as though he is giving us a, uh, an evaluation of these bodies of water. Like, oh, it's a great river. Oh, man, it's just so awesome. Oh, this, this sea. I mean, it's the best in the world. It's the great sea. He's not saying that. He is talking in terms of size, and not even necessarily size uh, like geographically. He's talking about how expansive and huge it is for this nation to dwell in this land. It is a vast amount of land. It is a huge amount of property and resources. It's one that is very much something to be proud of, something that has a lot of good stuff in the land, one that will make them famous for having this section of land. And all of that is being given to them. It is the one that goes from the great river to the great sea. And even talks about this language about the sun going down. These are very big ideas that we're seeing a big, vast expanse of land that God is giving to his people. Why would he say this? Again, I think what he's trying to do is help us to understand the gift that he is giving is magnificent and wonderful and huge. It's a wonderful thing that God has given to them in this gift. Now notice this other thing. He says, all the land of the Hittites. He didn't say that in Deuteronomy 11. Interesting. Why would he say it here? Why would he add this little piece here? I I, I thought on this for a while. I I didn't know why he would just name one or something like that, or why would he include people when he's talking about boundaries? Remember back to our original discussion. We talked about the introduction of this book. We talked about these vast amount of resources, land flowing with milk and honey, all these good things, these houses that have already been built, these cisterns that have already been dug and are filled, uh, the crops that are ready to harvest. But we must not forget that they're also filled with people. That's a very important piece for them to understand when they're going into this land. It's not just to go in and walk and claim this house. It is to conquer a people. It is, in one sense, to dole out God's judgment on those who have rejected Yahweh. And we will see that as we move through this part. So as he talks about this, these Hittites, uh, this would not be easy or this would not be a pleasant thing. There's much work to be done and the task then is really quite daunting. Lastly then, I want you to think about how God makes it directly for Joshua in verse 5. He says, no one shall be able to stand against you. And then he adds, all the days of your life. I mean, this is very specific. He's talking specifically to him. God is reassuring Joshua. 
He is simply telling Joshua that no one will be able to stand against you when you obey the commands of the Lord. I will give you success. As we get to verse 9 and through this next section, you're going to see that's a, a major theme here of good success. But that's not all. Notice he also adds, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Remember back to that feeling we kind of began with at the beginning today here. Let's talk about the nation that had felt the weight of Moses' death. One that is looks so highly to Moses and, 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 and loves him and appreciates him as a good leader, and he is iconic to them. I mean, do you think possibly that you know, Joshua would be a little self-conscious or a little insecure about his own ability to do the things that Moses has done, especially in regard to conquering the land? Yeah. I mean, Joshua is, is understanding the hugeness of his, for, his predecessor, this leader of, of Israel. But in that, God is so kind. God knows what he needs. In his loving, gentle care, Joshua receives words and promises from God, but not only words and promises. Wouldn't it be better if he gave him his presence? That's exactly what he does here. Look at what he does. In fact, we get that exactly here. God tells Joshua that in the same way I was with Moses, this person, this great leader who everyone loves and appreciates and almost idolizes, I will be with you. We spent a lot of time talking about this incomparable Moses but if I can remind you, there's a little bit of a different consideration here as well. Deuteronomy 32, 51, if you remember this part, Moses does not enter the promised land. Moses made a breach of faith. In other words, because of his unbelief, he could not enter into the promised land. Because of his disobedience, his sin, he cannot be the Savior. He is not the Messiah. He was an excellent leader. But he too disobeyed. And so as we see this, we realize that jo Moses falls short. He was not allowed to enter the promised land, and Moses died. He was human just like the rest of us. But his God did not die. This is huge. Moses died, but God did not. Moses went off the scene. God went very, very different from being off the scene. Instead, Moses was very, you know, again, very important but not as important as Yahweh. He was servant of Yahweh, the most important one. The same God who met Moses in the burning bush and calls him to this impossible task to go back to Egypt and to call these people out of bondage is the same God who comes and now talks to Joshua, who he also has the impossible task, not only to live up the standards of Moses, but to conquer the land. And in that, God knows all these things and the anxieties and the struggles that come along with that. And he says, like I was with Moses, I will be with you. You do not have to fret. I am with you. This task may seem insurmountable, but the answer is, I'm with you. God anticipated this. Would we not want to respond as a leader like, uh, I don't know if this is right for me. But God anticipates that. He says, just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. And what he really does is he helps take us back to Exodus 3. He's bringing us back to a context for us to understand. Moses was faced with a similarly enormous task, a daunting task that he could not do. And if you remember this, he says this in Exodus 3.11. Moses does. Who am I? Okay, you see where he's pointing? Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh 
and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God responds, but I will be with you. He, he doesn't even like, he doesn't even answer his question. It's not about you, Moses. He says, I will be with you. A few verses later, Moses is going to ask, who should I say is sending me? And he says, I am. Again, this incredible understanding that he is both the creator and holder together -er of all of creation. This is the great I am. This is the one who meets him in the burning bush. And now it's this one who promises Joshua that he will be with him. Now, if you and I were responding, I think we'd probably say something like this to, to Moses. If he said, what, what should I do about this? I'm so stressed out. We would say something like, don't worry. You're ready for this. I mean, you grew up in Egypt. You know Egyptian culture. You know the Egyptian language. Uh, you know how like royal customs work. Uh, I mean, you've got a great personality, Moses. Um, and doggone it, people like you. You're going to be just fine. We would respond something like that. Instead of an earthly answer, God gives a divine one. He doesn't talk to Moses about himself at all. Instead, he just answers, I will be with you. I wish I could give like some sort of a big, booming voice. Mine's not that great, but like, I will be with you is so immense that God himself would be there and work on his behalf and do what he's commanded him to do. Isn't that kind of like the wrapped up mystery of how God works anyway as he calls us to obedience, but then says, I will do this? This is how he calls Moses. And now he calls Joshua to the same task. Different in its details, but he is saying the same things. Lead the people in this way. I will be with you. He says, Joshua, I'm not going to leave you there either. He says one more thing. Not only I will be with you, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. He says, Joshua, I will march, I'm going to march you into this land but I will not march you in, in the heat of a dangerous battle, into hell's mouth, and then me retreat and leave you there to deal with it. I will not forsake you. I will be with you. I just want to stop and camp here for a moment, and we'll be done after this. Is this not a wonderful picture for us as believers? What a glorious truth that God will not leave Joshua. You and I don't need me to remind you of all the specific enemies that you have in this world. I know that each of you bring a different one in. For some of you, the pain of your life circumstances right now feels like it's too much. And it grates on you and how in the world you could possibly trust Christ. Some of you are struggling in deep pain and suffering from other sin. Some of you are in the throes of temptation to sin as we speak. All of that, you feel the weight of spiritual warfare. You don't, need to tell, you don't need me to tell you. The battle is raging. Some of you, it's deep loneliness and depression that no one else knows how to deal with. The devil, the world system, and your own passions, our own passions, are all on the same team trying to do something. Take Jesus Christ off of the, the, the throne of our hearts and replace him with other things so they can do their bidding. The battle is raging for your heart and trust in the King, Jesus. If this is true, there's a great deal of comfort in the words that Joshua receives here. You don't need me to help you search out your enemies, temptation, pain, suffering, hardship. That's easy. You brought them in here with you this morning. It's already weighing down your heart as we speak. What you need to hear from me is the gospel and its benefits to you as one who's received Jesus Christ. Now, 
the beauty of this is that Joshua 1.5 preaches the gospel to us. Now, you may say to yourself, now, Chris, hold on a second. You're preaching a ramification of the gospel. And Joshua 5, you know, 1, 5 is actually being preached to Joshua, not to all of Israel, so it's not really us. You're right. You're right. I am preaching a ramification of the gospel or a blessing. Um, I make no apologies for that, though. It, it kind of follows, then, that these blessings are coming then from God's presence. In other words, the only way that we can have access to these blessings is through Him. Meaning, if you don't have the gospel, you don't have God. And if you don't have the gospel, there's no way for you to understand then the blessings, and they're not yours. If you are not Jesus's, they're not yours. And these words are not for you. And so the gospel this morning is repent and believe, brothers and sisters, or those who do not know, friend, that you might know the saving power of Jesus Christ. I say this because if we don't understand this, that the gospel is before all these things, we can easily slip into this idea that this is just a good message for all of us to hear. Everyone that comes in, don't worry, God won't forsake you. I have bad news before I have good news. The bad news is not only will God leave you or forsake you, he will judge you. If you do not know and love and submit to Jesus Christ as the only Lord and Savior, but if you do, but if you will turn and repent of your sin and realize that he is the King of kings, that the only way that we can know the Father is through Jesus Christ, we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have a great inheritance that's so much better than the land this thing that's for the great river and to the great sea. No, no, no. We get it all in Jesus Christ. We have every spiritual blessing. It has every bit of reality, not just some fairy land in the sky that's to come. We have all the promises that are bound up in Jesus Christ when we know and love him. And believer, may I remind you that this passage, although it is written to Joshua, is not the only passage that we see this in the Bible. The author of Hebrews speaks to the Christian church in Hebrews 13, 5, and he says, Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. You and I have everything that we need in Jesus Christ. We have God himself. In the next verse, the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 118, 6, and he says this, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The idea is nothing. He can't. There's nothing that this world and the spiritual world can do to destroy me if I am found in Christ. And therefore, the beauty of the gospel, that God would do this and break through our sin and hardness of heart and give us new life. I'd love to ramble on about this and gush for minutes on end, or hours on end maybe, but I think there's a better way to do this. I want to take us to Romans 8, 31 through 39. You can go there, but I, I, I want you to listen I want you to think about the context of Joshua and, and his fear and his need for reassurance that God will be with him, that he won't be abandoned when he goes into battle, that he won't be in the middle of Canaan surrounded by all these enemies and be destroyed. Listen to how Paul talks about this. I'm going to read it and then we'll pray. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We feel this together. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice it doesn't just say, we are more than conquerors, period. No, brothers, this is what makes us Christian. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If you don't get that part, you don't get it. For I am sure of this, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is our promise. This is our inheritance, Jesus Christ himself. There is nothing that he cannot protect you from. He will hold you fast. He promises to do so. And it is his great love that holds us. It is his promises then, like the ones to Joshua that we hold fast to, saying, I know, Lord, you will not leave me or forsake me. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you have done in our own hearts to come to this situation where we realize, God, we need you. In all of our struggle, in all of our pain, in all of our temptation to sin, in all of our battling, would you help us to see that you will always be there? Not just as some grandfatherly figure. No, Lord, you are there to battle for us. None of the things that the world can hurl at us will ever take us away from you. May we rely then fully on Jesus Christ. We call to you asking for your grace. We call to you asking for you to fortify our hearts in the gospel. Foundationally, that we'd understand that if we have you, we have everything. God, would you use your word today better than I ever could for the sake of the gospel and your kingdom to come. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.